Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. That we may know the risen Christ. Father, we, we praise you that you have redeemed us that we may know the risen Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed his glory to us, that we might trust in him and be saved. And We pray, Lord, that you would grant us to never be satisfied merely with being converted, but that our longing in this life and our great hope for the next would be that we may know the risen Christ more and more and more. And we pray that His Holy Spirit who dwells in us as we study His Word now would lead us to that end, that we may know the risen Christ. Please expose this text to us and please expose our hearts. Please expose the kindness and strength and love of Jesus that we may desire Him all the more. Please grant us to know him more. We pray these things in the kind and strong name of Jesus, our brother and Lord. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our focus will be on chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, but for the sake of context and continuity, I'd like to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 17. So as you're finding your place there, let's all stand together and we will read that, that passage. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart... We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain." But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. You may be seated. This is the second part of a two-part message regarding the effective servant's investment and In the second part, we're going to focus in on the return on that investment. Different investments provide different rates of return. Some of you who are a bit older may remember a public figure famously investing $1,000 in cattle futures in the late 70s, and miraculously that investment yielded an unbelievable $100,000 just 10 months later. Can you imagine your 401k on that kind of return? $1,000 turned into $100,000 in 10 months. You may also remember the story that I told you last week of my my friend, the eager investor in college who invested in consumer goods, not the companies that make them, but the goods themselves. So his $1,500 TV from 1996 is little more than an enormous paperweight this morning. It is worth nothing. He couldn't give it to a museum. Different investments give different rates of return. We saw last week that effective servants, they are invested not in gold, but in glory. What that means is that they are invested in other people persevering in the faith until the coming of Jesus when they'll be finally and fully made perfect in Christ, that is glorified. Their glorification serves God's glory in that You have this enormous throng of formerly estranged sinners now gathered together as saints to find their eternal joy in Him. God is glorified in that, and that's what effective servants want to see. They want to see people glorified unto the ultimate glory of the Father. Effective servants, they're also willing to sacrifice for that investment. We saw that last week. And they're well aware of the dangers to that investment. But what is the return provided on investment in glory? That's the question this morning. What is the return provided by investment in glory? It's it's one word, just three letters, joy. And I don't care who you are, that's exactly what you want. Everyone on this planet is searching for joy. Investment in glory is the only investment that pays it in spades. And you don't have to wait until you enter glory to begin to enjoy those dividends. We saw three truths last week regarding the investment in glory. This week we'll get four more. The first of those is that the effective servant lives for return on the investment. Effective servants live for return on their investment. Look again at verse 6 with me. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, has brought the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. Verse 8 is key to this whole passage. I would say it's key to the book. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. That encapsulates the heart of an effective servant. Now, think about your neighbors for a moment. Think about your extended family members, your friends. How would they fill in the blank in this sentence? As long as 
blank, everything's going to be okay. As long as blank, everything is going to be okay. You may be able to answer that question for them just by looking at the way that they live. I know someone who by lifestyle would say, as long as I can make it home and just get a buzz on by drinking a few beers, everything will be fine. I know someone else. As long as I'm the funniest person in the room, it's going to be okay. These are not people in this church, by the way. As long as my kids go to college, I'll be fine. As long as my, my spouse remains faithful, everything will be okay. How about this one? If only this horrible trial would subside, then everything would be okay. That one, that last one, is what we would expect of someone in the shoes of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Verse 7, he refers to, quote, all our distress and affliction. They're, they're currently in it as Paul writes this. We've read before the laundry list of afflictions that Paul suffered in, in 2 Corinthians 11. We've read about the great despair that he, he describes in 2 Corinthians 1. We've also read about that terrible thorn in the flesh that he endured in 1 Corinthians 12. None of those things should surprise us because remember what Jesus said about Paul in Acts chapter 9. Jesus said about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, Jesus said that about Paul. Jesus, who was flogged, crucified, bore the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Jesus said about Paul, Paul is really in for it. And so we might expect that Paul, of all human beings, would feel think, say, as long as this affliction goes away, everything will be okay. But Paul has already shown in this letter and other writings in his, his life as depicted in Acts that he has a Christ-like perspective, a humble, self-sacrificial outlook on his own existence. Do you remember what Jesus said of himself? He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? But to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So Jesus said that. Jesus also said, if anyone would follow Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. Jesus said both of those things. In other words, if anyone would follow Me, he must do what I do. He must lay down his life for others. Now surely you and I, We don't lay down our lives as a ransom for anyone, but in following Jesus, we do give up our lives for other people. 1 John 3.16 tells us explicitly that that follows from our following Jesus. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. And that is exactly what led Paul to send Timothy to Thessalonica in the first place, which we, we, we saw last week was a serious personal sacrifice on Paul's part. You see, Paul understands this, and this, this is key for us this morning as we leave this place, as we seek to live lives that honor the Lord Jesus. When Jesus calls us to follow Him in sacrifice, He does not deprive us of joy, but quite the opposite. When He calls us to follow Him in sacrifice, He's saying to us, hey, follow me in joy. Follow me in joy. As long as blank, I'll be okay. Paul would never have filled that blank with freedom from trouble. As long as I have freedom from trouble, 
everything will be okay. This text indicates that Paul would say, as long as my brothers and sisters are persevering in the faith, everything will be okay. And so Timothy comes back with his great news for Paul and Silas. What was the content of that great news? Well, he tells us there in verse 6, there's two things. First of all, Timothy brought news of the Thessalonians' faith and love. Faith and love, they're hallmarks of the truly redeemed life. Faith and love, that was always the goal of Paul's ministry. We, we read about this in 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So these two things that Paul that, that reported to Paul, hey Paul, I've seen faith and I've seen love in the lives of the Thessalonians. Those aren't just two abstract characteristics, rather they are related to one another. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Remember, he, he, he answered the question, but he gave a bonus commandment. Remember? So the first, com- the first commandment, Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with everything that you are. The second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus reveals these two commandments. That is the sum total of all the law and prophets. Everything written in the Old Testament about how we should live can be summed up in those two commandments. Love God, love one another. But as we read the story of the Old Testament, what do we see in that regard? All we see is man's inability to obey those commands. Man, fallen in Adam, he is incapable of loving God and loving one another. There are a couple of reasons that that's terrible news, that we can't love God, can't love one another. There are two reasons on top of the fact that it just makes us miserable to be around. The first of those reasons is that our disobedience to these commands to love God and one another, our disobedience brings God's wrath upon us in the form of eternal hell. That's terrible news. But secondly, our inability to love God and one another because of our deadness and sin, that simultaneously marks our inability to properly image God and enjoy God, which is what He created us to do. God created us to image Him, that is, to represent Him and His character in the world, and as we do that, to actually enjoy fellowship with Him. So when we don't love, we're not imaging God, we're not being like God, because God is love, John tells us in his first epistle. So then, if we can't love, we can't love God, we can't love one another, that means We are unable to function the way that we were designed to function. We can't know and love and enjoy God. That's like a a boat that can't float. It's like an eagle that can't fly. What what do you even do? So because we, we only know malfunction in sin in this life, we are miserable in our sin, and on top of that, we have this terrible thing that we're doomed to punishment away from the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every sin that we commit rises from these hearts of hatred. Hearts unable to love God, unable to love one another. But Paul is a preacher of the good news. We've been, we've been called to be preachers of the good news. And the good news is that Jesus rescues us from this. He rescues us from this. Jesus sent His, I'm sorry, the Father sent His Son, the Eternal Son, to save us 
Jesus did that by living in our place. He perfectly loved God, perfectly loved man in our stead. And Jesus then died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Three days later, the Father raised Him from the dead, proving to all creation, look, Jesus was successful in His sacrifice. And so now, He's victorious over sin and death. The sin and death that plagued you, that's dead now. And Jesus now has the right to give life and forgiveness to everyone who repents and trusts in Him. But there's more than that. There's more, than, there's more to the good news. In saving us, Jesus saves us not just from the penalty of sin, but He saves us from sin itself. He saves us from hearts unable to love. He saves us from that inability to image God properly and love and enjoy God. How does He do that? He gives us new hearts with new desires, new loving desires, so that we, we want to love God. We want to love one another. And by the power of His indwelling Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Himself, He empowers us to become more and more loving like Him over time. That phenomenon of transformation into the image of Christ, becoming more loving of God and more loving of one another, that only happens in one kind of people. It happens in the lives of people who come to Christ in faith. Love and faith. Faith in Christ is evidenced by love for God and others. And that's why Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6 about faith working through love. Faith gives rise to this love. Therefore, love is the evidence of that faith. But we might ask, what, what, what exactly does, does that kind of love look like? Because everybody in the world, everybody in the world would say, yeah, I love. So what's the difference between the love that a believer exhibits and the love that the world exhibits? It's one word. Jesus gives it to us also in John 15. It's obedience. Obedience. We obey the Lord Jesus. That's what it looks like. Loving God, loving others looks like obedience to all the imperatives in the New Testament. Now, we could infer that from the fact that Jesus said, on these two commandments rely all the law and the prophets. But we also get to it there in John 13 through 15. If you're taking notes, you might just write down John 13 through 15. If you were to spend some time in John 13 through 15 in the next few days, that would be a great way to supplement what we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians this morning. Jesus gave that wonderful command and privilege in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus gives that command as He's going away. He's about to go to the cross. And right on the heels of giving that command, He gives this assurance. He who believes in Me, that is, he who has faith in Me, he will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So given that the immediate preceding context is that command to love one another as Jesus does, we must see that among those works that, that Jesus expects us to do because he's going to the Father, these great works that he does and greater works even than that, among those works are loving one another as Jesus loves us. In other words, as Jesus is going to the cross, He's giving the disciples, He's giving us in John 13 through 15, this great gift of being His hands and feet 
and voice in the lives of other people. Now stop and think about that for a moment. You and I as the conduit through which flows the love of Christ. Have you been loved by Jesus? Have you been loved by Jesus? Think about that for a moment. You better believe it. Now that love that you've experienced from Christ, He then gives you this outstanding, unbelievable, unfathomable privilege of giving to other people. You become the conduit through which He loves others. And it's a pathway to joy. Because as Jesus is loving other people through us, we're not these passionless, impersonal observers, but rather we're experiencing His love anew as it's flowing through us to other people, and we're loving them in ways we know we're not capable of. It's got to be the love of Jesus flowing through us. We experience that again, and it's just a fountain of joy. All the commandments in the New Testament, all these imperatives in the New Testament, they give shape to what it looks like to love God and love one another. And so, John 14, 12, if we believe in Christ, if we have faith in Jesus, we do the works that He does, we love others with His love, we obey these commands of the New Testament. We love in those particular ways. Faith is evidenced by a Jesus-shaped love. So, Timothy goes back to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas, Send him back. Go check on those people. Shore it up. He goes back to Thessalonica. What does Timothy see? He sees people loving one another as Jesus does. And so then he traces that back logically to faith. Only the believing can do this. Only the believing will do this. And Timothy concludes, hallelujah, they're still in the faith. The affliction all around them, it has not led them to fall away. That's the first big component of this news that Timothy brings back to these brothers. There's a second component also, and we, we, we don't want to overlook it. The second component of this good news is the Thessalonians' affection for the apostles. Timothy reported to these brothers, Hey, Paul, Silas, look, all the Thessalonians, they remember us kindly, just like we remember them. The original language is, is, is more literally, they have good memories of us. Desiring to see us just as we them. Now to the heart of the effective servant, investing in glory in other people, that's just that causes their hearts to soar. Because those people in Thessalonica, they're not just numbers, but they're names. They're people loved by these brothers. So that personal note goes right to the heart for Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And what does it move them to do? Paul writes about it here did nothing to change their circumstances. But he says, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. He's, he's not saying, hey, that, that's great news, but if we could only get this affliction to let up, then everything would be okay. No, he says, as long as they are standing in the faith, everything's going to be all right for us. Now, some of us feel that way about our own kids, right? As long as, they're, as long as they're standing fast in the faith, everything will be okay. And we should feel that way about our own kids. I, I, would, I would encourage myself, all of us, to adopt this John 13 through 15 mindset regarding everybody else. 
At first, Paul's, Paul's attitude, his perspective about all of this stuff, what he finds desirable, may be a little bit hard for us to fathom. But we have to remember, first of all, Paul has discarded this lie, this lie of the world that investing in temporal things is the only pathway to joy. Paul, by God's grace, he's rejected that lie. He knows that's nonsense. Or rather, he's believed what Jesus himself taught in John 13 through 15, adopting Jesus' mission, participating with Jesus in his work, being Jesus' hands and feet and voice in the lives of others. That's the pathway to joy in this dark world. And it's the only one. It's the only one. And it's not just any joy. It's not mere human joy. What did Jesus say about this command in John 15? He said this, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is Jesus' own joy. And it's not just better because, because there's more of it. Certainly there is more of it. It's not just Jesus-sized, though. It's Jesus' quality. This is divine joy that Jesus is offering to us as we work with Him in the lives of other people. Investment in glory pays dividends in Jesus' own joy. And we see evidence of this in Paul's response to this good news. When he sees the faith and love of these Thessalonians, or when he hears it reported, these Thessalonians into whom he has poured his life, he says, yes, everything is going to be just fine, even in the midst of my own distress and affliction. Being with Jesus in His work is the only thing that brings joy in this life. So what do you live for? What do you live for? Being with Jesus in His work is the only thing that brings joy in this life. You've got to know that. You've got to just not, not just know it, but you've got to know it. To use some of the language from last week in 2.19, what is your hope or joy or crown of boasting? If, if you would have joy, if you'd have joy not just in the next life, we're talking joy in this life. If you would have joy in this life, let this be your boast. I am a jar of clay, well-worn and poured out by the hands of Jesus Himself. That's the pathway to joy. There's not another one. Effective servants live for that return on investment. Second, effective servants thank God for return on that investment. They thank God for return on that investment. Look at verse 9 with me. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. You see, see how joy is the result of the investment here? It says, it says, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake? Paul's invested in the Thessalonians. They have remained in the faith. They've endured. And now that has resulted in joy for Paul. Big time joy Jesus' kind of joy. The joy that we feel for your sake in verse 9 is more literally the joy with which we rejoice. It's just a wonderful way of, of showing how this, this joy overflows in this work. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, they're enjoying what Jesus talked about in John 15, 12. This is the fullness of Jesus' own joy that they're, that they're feel, feeling. And what does, it, what does it prompt them to do? 
Well, it prompts Paul to wonder out loud, how could we ever thank God enough for this? How could we ever thank God enough for the joy that He's given us through the work that He's done, through the work that we've done in the Thessalonians? How could we ever thank Him enough? Now listen, Paul is, Paul is completely aware of his own contribution. Certainly he's aware of how much he's thought and cared for these Thessalonians. He's written about it already in chapter 2. Do you remember all of that active language in chapter 2 as, as Paul talked about his own example for the brothers and sisters there? Here's just one example, 1 Thessalonians 2.9. He said, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Talks about their love for them as a, as, a, as a mother, their love for them as a father. We did these things. Paul knows that he and, and the others have worked hard, and yet he writes, how could we ever thank God enough? You see, Paul had Jesus' own mindset in this regard. Jesus said in John 14, 10, the Father who dwells in me does His works. So when you see me doing amazing things, Jesus said, When you see me doing amazing things, it's the Father in me doing His works. That same mindset we find in Paul in various places in his letters. 1 Corinthians 15.10 is one of them. By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is within me. Paul certainly knows that he's worked hard, but God's grace, God's strength, have been the life, energy, and power of everything that He has done. And Jesus-sized and quality joy has resulted from that work. And so Paul says, how, how could we ever thank God enough for this? If you become an investor in glory and you start to see the God-given return on that investment, this thanksgiving piece is going to come very, very naturally because you'll be quite aware of your own effort But you'll be seeing these amazing things that the Lord is doing, and you will know that they were not done by you, but they were done by an almighty God somehow using you. Think about that for a moment, how God has used you. If if by God's grace you have been used by Him to help another brother or sister in the faith, and you've experienced joy from that, would you give a testimony to that right now by saying, Amen? Amen. What a kindness of the Lord to use us in His, in His work. What has the Lord done through you in the life of the brothers and sisters around you? Now listen, you may be discouraged right now because you can't think of anything. So what should you do? You can't think of any way that the Lord has used you to, to encourage someone else. Well, first of all, I would say there may be things that you're unaware of. There are ways that people have encouraged me that they don't have any idea about. But if you can't think of anything because you haven't been an intentional investor in glory, then the way to respond to that is simply to repent, not to dwell on lost time. Do not dwell on lost time. Dwelling on lost time is a waste of time. Repent, turn away from that, and just follow Jesus in His work now. Now, if you can think of ways that the Lord has used you to help others in their faith, then then meditate on the joy that you've received from that and give thanks to God. What a blessing. Wretched sinners receiving joy by being used by God. 
not just being transformed themselves, but by being used by Him to transform others. How could we ever thank God enough? Effective servants thank God for the return on their investment. Third, effective servants seek to maximize their investment. They seek to maximize their investment. They just keep investing, investing, investing. Look at verse 10. He prayed that prayer of thanksgiving. Verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. It wasn't enough just for Paul to receive that good news. Perhaps a typical believer might have heard that news and thought, well, this is fantastic. We can move on now. The investment in the Thessalonians is secure. We can do other things. Paul doesn't think that way. Not at all. He still wants to come and, quote, supply what is lacking in your faith. What does that mean? What does he mean by that? When he says, I want to get there and supply what's lacking in your faith. I think what he means is what he commands us to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. In other words, he's going to look for needs in people's lives and he's going to give them what they need. If they're idle, he's going to admonish them. If they're faint-hearted, he's going to encourage them. If they're weak, he's going to help them be strong. He's going to be patient with everybody. In other words, he's going to look for where they need to grow and he's going to help them grow. Now, This attitude of Paul's that I've, I've received this great news. They're still in the faith. That's wonderful. i got to get there. i got to get there and supply what's lacking in their faith. This, this teaches us the work is never done. And it makes sense when we realize that for Paul, for all of us, glorification is the goal. Not conversions and not, not even just sanctification. Not even just seeing people become more like Jesus. But seeing them cross the finish line. That's what we're all about. And so if I've got the mind of Paul, and if I've got the mind of Jesus, this is what I should be thinking. If Jesus hasn't come back yet, and I'm still breathing, then I'm working to secure the faith of the brothers and sisters around me. That's the whole gig. There is no moving on. There is no retirement. And the return on that investment is enjoyed all along the way in this dividend of Jesus kind of joy. Now, what, what does this look like, though? And, I, and I, I would submit to you that, that those of you who have been at Providence for long, you've actually seen this kind of thing being done. People investing in others, and then investing in others, and then investing in others, and just keeping on and on and on. It looks like this kind of thing. You, you, you see a new believer who needs to be discipled, you begin discipling that person. And they are a major concern in your life. And so you want to see them get up to speed. You want to see them indoctrinated in the things of the faith. You want to see them really grasp the fact that they need desperately fellowship with the Lord in the Word and in prayer. They need desperately fellowship with the Lord through fellowship with the church. And so you're pushing them toward that and you're helping them see more of Jesus and all of these things. And eventually see that yet you see that yes, they've grasped those things. And they are enjoying fellowship with Jesus. And they are engaging with other believers in meaningful fellowship and accountability. And then you feel, you feel free that you can let them go for a while. And right about that time, you see a brother or sister struggling in their marriage. And so then you come alongside them and walk through them with that. And for months, that's what you're doing. That's how you're investing. Eventually, that person that you've been walking beside is well-equipped to handle that difficulty. 
right about that time, the relationship that you've been trying to cultivate with a neighbor for the purpose of bringing the gospel to bear on their lives, that begins to show some promise because in that neighbor's life, God sovereignly has brought about circumstances that have finally made them willing to read the Bible with you one-to-one. And so you begin to read the Bible with them one-to-one. Eventually, the Lord saves that person and you begin discipling that person. In the middle of all that, that first person that you were discipling begins to have a crisis of faith. And so you go back over and you begin investing in them again. You come alongside and you shore up the investment there. And on and on it goes. And we've got people at Providence that actually do this. One person that I, that I, would, that I would commend to you is Melinda Harris. She lives this way. And she is intentional about investing in a person's life. When she's in, she is in and she's on you. But then when she's done, she prays this, Lord, who's next? And wouldn't you know it, he tells her. She, she sees the next person, she begins investing in that person. That's her life. She doesn't retire from this. She doesn't take vacations. Just investing, investing, investing. Listen, here, here's, here's the, the thing that we need to grasp this morning. Jesus has work to do everywhere around us. He has work to do. There are souls to save There are souls to sanctify, and by some mysterious, gracious kindness, He's chosen us as His means to do that. He's chosen us as His instruments. There's always work to do. So there's somebody around you right now who needs something. There's something lacking in their faith that you can supply. So I would would ask you to think, who is that? And we could use 1 Thessalonians 5.14 to help us think through that. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, again, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Ask yourself, who around me is idle? That is, who around me is, is not living with any kind of sense of spiritual urgency? Grab that person and begin to invest in them. Ask yourself, flip through the membership directory and ask yourself, who's faint-hearted here? Who, who is discouraged because of Trial after trial after trial. Grab that person, invest in them. Ask yourself, who, who is weak here? Who, who, is, who is giving into sin because they're living in this world that's much louder than their own ability to preach the gospel to themselves? Grab that person and invest in them and do all of that with patience knowing that the work is never done. You just keep investing, keep investing, keep investing. Who is it? Who is it? I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't leave this place without having an idea of who you can invest in or without making a commitment before the Lord. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get that membership directory out. I'm going to flip through there. I'm going to find somebody. Somebody needs something. Effective servants, they desire to maximize the investment. They just keep investing. Finally, effective servants pray for the increase of their investment. They pray for the increase of their investment. Look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Now, all that thanksgiving from those previous verses, that took place while these brothers 
We're petitioning the Lord for something else. They're thanking the Lord. Lord, thank you for the joy that you've given us through your work, through us, in them, and they're praying, Lord, please do these things also. First of all, they prayed that they would, have, that they would get to have that face-to-face meeting that we've already talked about. Lord, please let us get there and continue to invest in these brothers and sisters. That's the first thing they prayed. The second thing that they prayed is, Lord, please make them increase and abound in love. We thank you for the love that you've already given them. We pray that you'll make it increase and abound for one another and for all. And that goes to this whole thing that we just talked about. The work is never over. The love is never enough. The apostles, they're so thankful for the love evidenced in the Thessalonians. They're thankful for the joy that it brings them. And yet they're continuing to pray, Lord, please give us more love. Make it overflow in them. Now, why, why would the apostles pray for that increased and abounding love in these brothers? Let me give you four reasons. Four reasons that he would pray that. Four reasons that you and I should pray that. First of all, the extended context of chapter 4 tells us that it pleases God for us to abound in love. It pleases Him. Look at four one. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You're already loving. He's saying, do it more, do it more. Jump down to verse 9, 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers in Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers... Do this more and more. Why pray for more love in the brothers and sisters around us? Because it pleases God, plain and simple. pleases God. What a delight to please the Lord. Second reason to pray that for one another, that we would increase and abound in love, is that love motivates further service to the Lord. Love motivates service to the Lord. Paul's already demonstrated this for us in his own life. You look back to 1 Thessalonians 2. He describes his love for them as the love of a mother for her children. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Love, genuine affection, moves us to give of ourselves to one another. Paul wants to see that in their lives, so he prays for more love, more love, more love, more motivation to serve others. A third reason to pray this for one another, that we would increase and abound in love, is that love evidences faith. We've just talked about that. Love is the evidence of genuine faith. So when we pray that that our brothers and sisters grow in love, we're praying, Lord, give more evidence, more and more evidence that they are following you. A fourth reason and the most immediate reason in this context is that love is the foundation for perseverance. Love is the foundation for perseverance. We've just read it in these last three verses. Let me give you a more literal rendering. So he prays, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Here's the more literal rendering. Unto the establishing of your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Throughout this text, Paul has had glorification on the brain. We saw it back in 2.19 where he's describing the, the brothers and sisters there as his hope and joy and glory and crown of boasting. 
before the Lord at His coming, at the coming of the Lord. So He's got the last day. He's got glorification in mind. He uses that same phrase here in these verses. At the coming of the Lord, He's thinking about glorification. And the wording here, specifically the time indicators, tell us, yes, He's thinking last days. He's thinking glorification. So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Where? Before our God and Father. That means at the judgment. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. He's thinking about glorification. So He wants them to increase and abound in love so that they continue in the faith and finish the race. To summarize then, Paul's praying for their endurance in the faith. He's praying for their endurance in the faith manifested by an increase in love unto their glorification at the coming of Christ. Oh Lord, make them grow in faith and love so that they wait for Jesus and when He comes, they are fully and finally made perfect in their likeness to Him. Would you please do that for them, Father? That's His prayer. Have you ever prayed that prayer for anyone? What a wonderful prayer. You know, last week we, we considered for just a moment the fact that God uses means to accomplish His sovereign ends. One of the means that God uses to cause you and I to persevere in the faith and to cross the finish line is the prayers of the saints for us. Did you know that when you invest your time in praying for, for, for the faith of others, that they would persevere in the faith, that is never wasted time. God takes those prayers, uses them as means to actually make it happen. He makes them persevere when we pray that they would persevere. We've got to catch a, a, a vision for that. So when, when you see someone struggling, what's the best thing to do? You see someone struggling, what's the best thing to do? They're faint-hearted, they're weak, they're idle. I'm going to give you two bests, unless you're a grammar nerd and you make one of them into a participle. If, if we see someone struggling in the faith in some way, act to help them, praying that God would work in them. Did you get that? You do something while praying that God will do something. Those two things, or one thing, however you prefer to look at it. That's what we do when we see someone struggling in the faith. We move to act. We pray that God would help them. And when we catch a vision for the joy that comes from this kind of work, again, it's just a natural prayer to, to, to pray this. Lord, Lord, more joy. Please give me more joy. Please give me more opportunities to work with Christ to this, toward this glorious fruition of all of these saints standing fast in Him until He returns and we all enjoy you eternally. I want to close with a couple of questions. One is from last week. We closed with this question last week. In what are you investing your life? Everybody's investing something, and maybe we've got it allocated in a bunch of different things. In what are you investing your life? A more important question for us this morning is, what return are you enjoying from that investment? What return are you enjoying from that investment? Is it Jesus-sized and quality joy? Because if it's not, brothers and sisters, you've got to reallocate pronto because you are missing out. If you have never watched Jesus 
transform someone through your inept, imperfect hands, I beg you, stop wasting your time and get on that train. It is the pathway to joy. Invest in glory and begin to experience the dividends of Jesus' own joy. Let's pray. Father, it's a great generosity that you have saved us. We certainly do not deserve it, and yet you've given us the Lord Jesus himself. And on top of us, you've given us this great privilege of working with him as he seeks to save, sanctify, and glorify the lost. He invites us to be his hands and feet and voice. On top of that, Lord, Jesus then gives us His joy in that work. It's it's astounding generosity. We thank You for it. I pray, Father, that You would awaken us to the lie of the world that there are other pathways to joy, that You would help us to be disabused of those things, and that we would invest our lives completely in glory and seeing other people glorified in Christ unto your ultimate glory in the saints. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.